2 Samuel. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, and chapter 1 was really just a, um, really a dovetail, if you will, because uh, the last chapter of 1 Samuel really spoke of the death of Saul and his sons, and 2 Samuel chapter 1 starts off with that same event, so we have kind of a dovetailing of events and some more information about what happened during Saul's death, and, and we understand, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, that an Amalekite man lost his life because he put Saul to death. Um, Saul was terminal. He was going to die because he had fallen on his sword, and his armor bearer had done the same, but he wasn't quite dead yet and in agony, and so he sees this Amalekite. The Amalekite finishes him off at Saul's request, and so he does. But in the meantime, David finds out about this. The Amalekite comes and says, you know, I finished, you know, told him the story and that he had finally killed Saul and took his crown and his uh, brace that he would have around his arm as, as the king. And David, uh, being such a, a wonderful man and such a loyal um, God-fearing man, he didn't take that like most people would. Most people would think that when somebody else vanquishes my enemy for me, then, you know, that's a really great thing. But David's heart was such that he did not delight in the death of Saul. Saul hated David, but I don't think David hated Saul. David just wanted to be left alone. And, um, and Saul was pursuing him because of his jealousy and because of his hatred for David. And, and we saw in chapter 1, 2, after David learned of the death of Saul and his sons, that David, including Jonathan, who was the best friend of David, he and David were like this. And what a unique friendship that was. You know, um, the Bible says, uh, it told us earlier that their friendship was, surpassed the love of women meaning the love for a man for a woman. And, and it wasn't anything twisted like we might find in our culture today, which is very prevalent, unfortunately. No, there was no homosexual relationship between David and, 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 and Jonathan. They, they were just really great friends, and they loved each other. And, um, and so David, in chapter 1, he wrote a song or a, uh, a lamentation, really, of Saul and Jonathan specifically. And it's a really touching uh, song. You, you know, we looked at it last week, or the week before last. And so we're going to pick up there tonight in chapter 2. And let's just read the whole chapter, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at some things. And then we're going to take communion this evening as well. But let's just read it. I'll read it to you. Just follow along with me so we can get the context of what's happening. So after this, after chapter 1 and what I just described to you, it says, And it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there with and his, wife, his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, and David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will also repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. 
Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the mood changes. Underline but Abner. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And so they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and they went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. And so they fell down together. Therefore, the place is called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. And so there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner the son of Israel or the men I'm sorry, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. That's kind of an interesting description. And so Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. And then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he said, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And so Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. And so it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, they stood still. So Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ama, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. And now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, and they took their stand on top of a hill. And then Abner called out to Joab, and he said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you, do you not know that it shall be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. And then Abner and his men went on all that night through through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, went through all the Bithran, And they came to Mahanaim, and so Joab returned from pursuing Abner. 
And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing David, of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. And so we see this uh, really unfortunate uh, battle between David's men, because as Saul had died, certainly uh, Abner, who was Saul's commander of his army, He's, he's thinking, now that my master's dead, we, we want to continue our, our army, our grouping. And so Abner gets the bright idea, now that Saul's sons are dead, the first three sons, we find out that they had a fourth son, and his name was Ishbosheth. And so Abner decides to make him king, which would make sense, because normally when people have a king, and that king dies, his son takes his place. That's the normal way of things. But Abner was forgetting one thing. Or maybe he was completely ignorant. I really don't know. But David had been anointed king at least 10 years prior to this. Maybe even 15 years prior to this event that we're looking at tonight. And you remember that, uh, and we'll look at, we'll look at this, but, but uh, Abner was not aware of that that throne did not belong to Ishbosheth. It belonged to David. It belonged to David. And then we see David's nephew, Asahel, dying in battle. And he's probably, he's listed last and probably the youngest. And so he's probably, it says that he was fleet on foot like a wild gazelle. So he's probably a young guy, full of energy, very nimble, and thinking that he can somehow chase Abner, the seasoned war veteran, and think that he can take him down just because of his agility and his youth, and Abner knows better. And unfortunately, Asahel loses his life. And, um, but that's not really, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot here, but the thing that I really want us to focus on tonight is really the fact that we can be patient, that we need to exhibit patience and faith in the promises of God. Faith and patience in the promises of God. And we're going to look more at that and develop that as we go onward. But let's go back to verse 1 and take a look. Notice that it says in verse 1 that David inquired of the Lord, and saying, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, Go up. And he said, What city? And the Lord says, To Hebron. David was probably inquiring of the Lord by Urim and Thummim, these two rocks that the, the high priest would have inside his ephod, inside a little pouch, and certain questions would be asked, and the priest would pull in. And remember, Abiathar was with David at this time. Remember, his father, um, Ahimelech, and his other brothers at the city of Nob were killed by Doeg earlier in, in, um, when we were in 1 Samuel. And so he's probably inquiring the Lord by that method, and he trusted the Lord. And, and I love this about David. You know, he didn't say, well, I don't really like that, that idea. Let's put the things back in the best two out of three. You know, he didn't, he didn't go about, about it, it that way. He trusted God, and he trusted God's priest who was with him, Abiathar. And David didn't argue. And it's good to inquire of the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? 
It's good to inquire of, uh, inquire of the Lord. Are you inquiring? Are you continuing to inquire of the Lord? Or are you making your own plans and asking him to bless it? I've done that, and it doesn't work so well. And Sometimes I get myself in a mess because I, I say I'm going to do something, and I don't really inquire of the Lord. Lord, should I do this? Give me, you know, and give the Lord some time. Not that he needs time, but he needs, uh, he needs to speak to us. And sometimes we're not ready to hear an answer. We're just so anxious and impetuous. We don't always stop and think. We don't always stop and pray. We don't always wait upon the Lord. And God is not obligated to bless what we put our hand to. This is why we need to be prayerful, right? The last time we hear of David inquiring of the Lord is back in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. You'll remember in 1 Samuel 23 up until chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, there's no mention of David at all inquiring of the Lord. Because David, if you recall, was running from Saul. And in the process of his running and in his fear, he was compromised, even making an alliance with the Philistine king, Achish, remember, and, and being confederate with him, even, even willing to go to war with the Philistines against David's own people. Just madness and lunacy. David, we know this was not his best time in his life. This was the worst valley that I think, one of the worst valleys that David would have gotten in. But David, he, as he's running, you know, he's not inquiring. He's, 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 he's doing things that are very aberrant. They don't make a lot of sense. And it's not until right when they were going to, the Philistines were going to go to war against Israel. And, and that is the battle where Saul lost his life. And David was going to be part of the Philistine army and his men. They were going to be part of that Philistine army that was going to come against uh, Israel. And you remember what happened. Achish said, David, I love you and I want you to stay. And all the other Philistine lords says, we don't trust this guy. We know he's a Hebrew. We know that we're going to get in a battle with him. And then he's going to turn on us right in the middle of the battle. And so Achish, remember, told David, David, go back to Ziklag. And so David made that trek from the north, about 80 miles south, down to Ziklag. And you recall, by the time he got there, the Amalekites had already attacked Ziklag, where all these 400 men, including David, his two wives, their, all their kids, all their wives, and all their livestock and everything was plundered by the Amalekites, who came up from the south of Ziklag and took them captive, and then went back. And, 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 and David then... It says in um, 1 Samuel 30, verse 7, it says, Then David, after this event occurred and after everyone is heartbroken, because they don't know if they're, their sons, their daughters, their wives, are they alive, are they dead, what's going on with them? They assumed that they had probably taken them captive. They were going to be slaves. And it says that David said to Abiathar the priest, this is 1 Samuel 30, verse 7, he said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And notice verse 8. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, and he says, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them. And not only that, without fail, recover all. And isn't it just like us? I, I, I can so relate to David. It's not until my back is broken. It's not until my, my heart is broken when my plan has come unraveled and I find myself in a mess, then I cry out to the Lord. <laughs> we humans are something, aren't we? 
We don't reach out and ask God. When things are going well, that's the most dangerous time for us, Christian, because when things are going well, we never inquire of God. Very rarely. We, we assume that we're in God's will because things are going well. Did you know that that's not necessarily the truth? Sometimes you can, things can be going well and your flesh can be so excited and so appeased and comfortable and coddled and feeling really good and even have an ice cream with it. And you're right in the middle of the devil's hands. Sometimes. Not all the time. Right? But David inquired of the Lord. When he finally came to his senses, all of his madness, he finally is like, oh my gosh, I've forgotten the Lord. <laughs> why, why did I forget you, Lord? I knew you were there all, you've helped me all this time, and here I am in this strait, and now I'm going to call out to you. And I love the fact that God didn't say, mm, I don't think so. You ignored me, David, for quite a while, and I'm just, I'm busy. You know, God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he doesn't think like man thinks. Man thinks if you ignore a man, a man will ignore you. But when you ignore God and you come back to God, God's going, oh, great, let's start again. That's his loving kindness. That's, that's, that's agape love, which is so sparing today. Self-sacrificing, always looking for the needs and the, 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 the blessing of others at the expense of self. So rejoicing, or I'm sorry, um, inquiring of the Lord is good. It's very good. Paul said to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 16, he said, Rejoice always, and notice, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Giving thanks for all things. And I want to be a thankful person. I've been given much, and you've probably been given much. Let's be thankful people. Amen. And David inquired of the Lord. And he said, where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron, or to Hebron. Now Hebron was formerly called Kirjath Arba. Kirjath Arba literally means the city of Arba. Do you remember the giants? The Nephilim? Remember Goliath came from the giant? Well, this city of Hebron was formerly named... Kirjath Arba, which means the city of Arba. And this was, he was the father of Anak, one of these giant, a giant race of people. And they were um, a real problem and probably demon-possessed. They were a terror. They were a terror to all the people. And so this Hebron, if you were to look at a map of the Dead Sea and you were to go right in the middle of the Dead Sea and then go west about 18 miles, you'd run right into Hebron. It's about... 18, I'm sorry, it's about 19 miles southwest of Jerusalem as well. And so verse 2, it says, David went up to Hebron and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men also who were with him, every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed king David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now, you might want to write some verses off to the side here, because the men of Jabesh-Gilead and the tribe of Benjamin and, and Saul, they have a, an affinity. They have a connection. And without going into all that right now, I, I'd like for you to just write a few things down, and you'll see why the, the men of Jabesh-Gilead and the tribe of Benjamin, what, what was the connection between the two of them? Uh, just write down a couple things. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. 
And then Judges, chapters 19 through 21, specifically 21. But those chapters, you look at those and you'll see, and start with the Judges portion first because you'll see the history going backward, what had happened. And it'll make a lot of sense why there was this deep friendship, this deep camaraderie, if you will, between these two. So it says, verse 5, that David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And I love this about David's character, because he not only had great respect for the office of the king of Israel, he not only had great respect for that, for King Saul and his family, but he also had a great respect for the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had respect for Saul and his sons. And again, this man was an enemy to David, and yet David shows this kindness. You'll notice throughout what we've read, he didn't put his hand against Saul, ever. He never touched his sons. He didn't want anything to do with it. Even his men wanted to kill Saul at one point, and David says, don't do it. Don't you lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Yes, he's hunting me. Yes, it would be nice to have him out of the picture, but don't you dare put your hand against whom God has anointed. David was patient in God's promises. And that's really our theme tonight. We're going to develop that even further in a few minutes. But he had a great respect for these men. And what did the men of Jabesh-Gilead do? You'll recall in 1 Samuel 31, the very last chapter of, of 1 Samuel, it says, and this is verse 8, it says, It happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, this is after the battle where Saul and his sons had died, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men, they arose and they traveled all night, and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there. And then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and then they fasted seven days. And so David admonishes them for their faithfulness and not just letting that their bodies rot there on the wall, which is what their enemies were going to do. They were trophies, and so they were just going to let them stay up there. But they had respect for Saul and his sons. And David blessed them for that. He repaid them for their kindness to Saul and his sons. And certainly Jonathan was among them. And you know, Jonathan and David loved each other as dear friends. So in verse 7 it says, Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also, underline this, also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Underline that line. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And so we get back to really developing this theme of patience, excuse me, and faith in the promises of God. Let me ask a question. Was David trying to usurp authority here? Was he trying to, out of pride and greed, was he grasping at power? You rightfully did this. You rightfully said no. Because for about 10 years... David had been on the run. He's been hunted by Saul, even though the Lord had, a, had Samuel anoint David king. 
David was patient. He waited upon the Lord. He even wrote a psalm, Psalm 40. You know this psalm. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. He heard my cry. And didn't God hear David's plea as David was hunted like an animal by Saul? God heard him. He inclined to him. He heard his cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, David says, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God, and many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. David waited patiently, even though he knew he was a rightful king. He waited almost 10 years, and now Saul is dead, and now it's time to go into the palace. <laughs> but the rest of Israel is not with David. Because Abner, his anointing, he, he's anointed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, his youngest son, to be king. And now the only one, the only tribe of Israel that's with David is his own tribe, Judah. And they anoint him king. And, and you know what? David didn't say, oh man, this is just not what, this is not, I thought there was going to be more than this. I wanted the whole thing. I'm just going to get Judah? What about the other 11? He didn't complain. He didn't have a fit. He didn't flop on the ground with a lollipop in his hand and scream and pound on the ground, kick his feet at Walmart with his mother watching in horror. He didn't do it. <laughs> but what did David say in Psalm, 20, or Psalm 27? Again, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That's something that we need to do. We need to wait. We need to learn patience. I am not, I find myself, you know, thinking to myself, wow, I'm really patient. And then the Lord reveals to me by some circumstance that I'm really not as patient as I thought I was. Have you had that happen to you? You kind of like, huh, I'm somewhat of a spiritual giant now. And the Lord goes, oh, just give me a few days. <laughs> and then you find yourself slipping on a banana peel. You find yourself doing something and you're just about ready to blow up because you're so impatient. I find that true of myself. Even Paul, when he spoke to his young protege, Timothy, what did he say to him? But you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. And here it is, patience. Pursue patience and gentleness. What did James tell us in his, uh, his letter in chapter 1, verse 2? He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. And, and wasn't this the life of David? He was being tested, 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 tested. And I think for the, the greater the work that the Lord has for a person, the greater the preparation. David was prepare, or God was preparing David for probably 10 or 15 years after he was anointed already to be king. That's amazing. And David waited. He trusted the Lord. We need to do the same. Has God given you promises? Has God spoken to your heart specifically, special, personal promises? We know the promises in the, in the word of God, and he's going to be faithful to that, but he even gives you promises specifically to your life, things he's going to do, things he's going to lead you in. Are you, do you believe that? Notice in verse 7, he says at the end there, the, the line I had you underline, also the house of Judah was, has anointed me king over them. Was David again? Was he trying to usurp authority? Was he, trying, was he grasping at power? 
Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I think you know the answer. The answer is no. I'll just tell you the answer, but we're going to prove that by looking at the scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look at verse 11. Remember, this is when Samuel went to Jesse's house. Jesse was David's father. And remember, uh, Jesse or David had seven older brothers than him. And you remember what had happened, how Samuel had got to them, and he looked at Abinadab. He was the Abercrombie, uh, Abercrombie model, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, he wore all the nice stuff, thin, you know, tall and handsome, right? Looked like a beach guy. And God says, nope, I've refused him. That's not the one. And then he just goes down the line, you know, and finally they're like, there's no more sons. Where's the last son? Where's your eighth son, Jesse? Oh, <laughs> you mean David? Uh, he's out in the field. You don't want, you, <laughs> you don't want him. He's, he's, he's out there with the sheep. It's a messy job. Nobody likes it. And he does it, and that's great. But uh, I don't think you really want. And, and God spoke to Samuel's heart, and he said, that's, he says, call him and wait. And Samuel said, I'm not going to sit until he comes. And so he comes. And Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, in 1 Samuel 16, Are all the young men here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil, and notice he poured it on him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose, and he went to Ramah. Now this is back, you know, um, a while ago. You know, David's probably, he's, a, he's a, in his teens. He's probably 15, 16, maybe 17 years old, maybe, when this happens. Now turn with me to, to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. So we see that God anointed, God picked him, God anointed him. Now turn with me to the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel. And you'll recall that when David was on the run from Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, whom David had a great friendship with, he goes out to meet David in the wilderness of Ziph, which is just an area where there's a lot of woods and a lot of rocky terrain. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose, verse 16, he rose and he went to David in the woods and he strengthened his hand in God and he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you and you shall be king over Israel and I will be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So here David is, or I'm sorry, Jonathan is even prophesying and confirming what God had already done with David and anointing him with oil. Do you see the picture? God is putting together this tapestry of things and he's putting two and two together. So, was David trying to usurp authority, grasping at power? No, he wasn't. He was simply walking in the promises of God. Walking in the promises of God, then there's no shame or contempt in walking and acting upon the promises of God. I love that. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to fast forward a little bit because we're in the second chapter. But by chapter 7, we're going to see David now finally being king 
over all of Israel, not just Judah, but also all the other tribes. So God here is going to show that he has fulfilled the promise personally to David. And David has been patient all this time. Fifteen years, approximately, have gone by until he finally takes the whole enchilada, before he's king over all of Israel. But it doesn't end there. God fulfills his promise in David. Can you see, that? If, you, if you look up here with me, over here is like the promises that God gave to David. And then you see God performing his um, promises to David. And then at the same time, he, God is speaking to other promises that are yet to come through David. I mean, how much better could it be? You tell me what you're going to do, you've done it, and you're also telling me stuff that you're going to do yet in the future. That, to me, is remarkable. Notice what it says in 2 Samuel. And this is what is referred to as the Davidic covenant. This is a chapter you want to star, you want to make um, known to yourself. And this is an event after David had become king over all Israel. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he was now, um, and again, God fulfilling that promise to him. He brings the Ark in. And then God gives him even more wonderful promises. Let's read just the first um, uh, 16 verses of this because it's an important chapter. The Davidic covenant that God made with David. It says, Now it came to pass when the king David was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, I, have, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark, the ark of the covenant, it dwells inside tent curtains. And so Nathan, being excited by David's zeal, he says to the king, without notice, without inquiring of the Lord, Nathan is caught off guard here too. He's like, David, that's a great idea. That would really honor God. Yeah, go ahead and do it. Do all it's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened, verse 4, that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in the house since the time that I brought the children of Israel out from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on, on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and have no more. And shall move no more, excuse me, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people and have caused and, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Excuse me, I messed up that line. Let me read it again. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you, here it is. I'm going to make you a house, David. What do you mean, Lord? I've already got this house. It's made of cedar and it's beautiful. It's nothing like the tent you're living in. I think David was feeling guilty. And I would have too. So he's like, I'm going to build God a house. And God says, don't bother, David. I don't have a problem living in this tent. The heavens of heavens can't contain me. 
I'm not worried about this, but I'm going to build you a house. And God wasn't speaking about a physical home for David. Notice what he says. He says, I will build a house. When your days, excuse me, and the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will set up your seed after you. Who is that seed? It's a trick question because both answers are right that you're thinking. What are they? Solomon and Jesus, right? I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom Notice, shall be established forever before you. And he says it again, your throne shall be established forever. And so these new promises that God is giving to David, he's going to have to be patient. And some of these promises he's not going to see. Certainly he's going to see Solomon, his son. But in that promise, that covenant that God gave to David... He was also not only speaking of his immediate son, Solomon, but who would be born through David, through the line of Judah? It would be Jesus, right? And his his kingdom would last forever. Solomon would die after 70 years, but not Jesus. His kingdom will live on forever and ever and ever. An amazing thing. But patience and faith in the promises of God. David was patient but not without problems along the way, which is true of us all, isn't it? You recall in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, it says that Abraham, uh, the Lord spoke to him and says, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what did Abraham do? He said, no, thanks. No, that's not what he said. What did he say? Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was seven, or Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree, And the Canaanites were then in the land. And notice what happened. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Lord had appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And so here again, there is faith and there is um, patience in the promise of God. Because God is making him a promise. Making Abraham a promise. To your seed, you are going, they are going to inherit this land. In fact, it wasn't even Abraham. It wasn't even Isaac. It wasn't even Jacob who had possession of that promise. It wasn't until the 12 tribes, and as they went through the promised land and came into the promised land, the promise was for them and their grandkids, their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't see it with their eyes. They had to believe by faith, and they believed. They believed. 
A promise was given to them, and they waited patiently for it, knowing that it wasn't even going to happen in their lifetime. But they acted as if it was going to, because they knew that God could not lie. And is God going to lie to you? Can God lie? He cannot lie. We lie because we don't know all the facts. We don't know all the information. Therefore, we make up lies to cover up things. See, God, who's all-knowing, he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's no need for him to lie. There's no shadows with him. He sees everything like it's plain. He knows exactly what's going on in my heart and in your heart. He knows our very words that we're going to speak tomorrow. He could speak to us right now if he so chose and say, at 12.03 tomorrow afternoon, this is what you're exactly what you're going to say. And I know what you're getting for lunch, by the way. And you should probably have one last cheeseburger. Right? He could tell us if he wanted to. But he gives us free will. But what does it tell us in Hebrews? I love this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And the same thing with David, right? He had this anointing on him. He waited 15, 10, 15 years. And now he's got Judah. And we haven't gotten to chapter 5 or chapter 7 of this book yet, but at that time he's just got Judah. And he's, God had said that he's going to be king over Israel. So he's patient. He's waiting. He's acting as if God had already done it, even though he doesn't see it right in front of him. That's what faith is. He has the confidence, the assurance that God is going to do it, even though it's not materializing before him. And it says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. But then it goes down in verse 6, and it says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then down in verse 8, it says something wonderful about Abraham, about the one we just read about in chapter 12 of Genesis. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, notice, not knowing where he was going. Try that someday. I mean, think about that. You wake up one morning and, the God, and God says, I want, you to, um, I want you to go. Well, where do you want me to go? Do you want me to go to Syracuse? Do you want me to go to Buffalo? No, just get going and I'll tell you as you go. Are you kidding me? Where am I going? How far am I going to go? Don't worry about it. Just do it. That takes faith. <laughs> Would you be willing to do that? God just says, Go. I'm able to get you wherever you need. Don't, don't even worry about it. Just, just pack up the kids and start going, and you trust me. Man, I tell you, that's, that's, that's heavy stuff. So when he went out not knowing where he was going, and by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now these, all three of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have all been, God has reiterated the promise to them, and yet they weren't going to obtain it in their lifetime. But they were going to be an integral part of it. For he, and then it says here, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Here it is. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is is God. 
He waited for a city whose builder and maker is God. What about us? What about us? Are we, fulfill, are we waiting patiently for the fulfillment of God's promises? And let me just go to one that fits right in and dovetails right in with this. The maker, and the, who they look, they look for, they're looking for a new city whose maker and, and foundation is of God, is God. Turn with me to John chapter 14. And this is how we now can put feet on this idea of having faith and patience in the promises of God, just as David did, just as Abraham did. What did Jesus tell us there that evening before he was, you know, during the Last Supper, that evening before he would be crucified or or captured and crucified? What did Jesus tell his disciples that very evening? He said to them, let not your heart be troubled. Because they were concerned. Because Jesus kept talking about this idea of him being um, crucified. And then on the third day he would rise. They were completely out to lunch with that meant. And, and with, for good reason. It's never happened before. If somebody told you something like that and you've never seen or heard of it before, you're going, what? What? Uh, I don't understand what you're talking about. And they're just like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also, believe also in me. Notice what he says. Here's the promise, saints. Listen to this. In my Father's house are many mansions. Is that a promise? It is. It's a statement of fact. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And now notice the promise. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas, you remember, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then uh, later on in that chapter, it says, Jesus said this in verse 15. He says, if you love me, guys... Keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So Jesus is... Not only saying he's got a place prepared for us, that's a promise that we're waiting for patiently. As David was waiting patiently, the promise had been given. Now he's just waiting, waiting, patiently, waiting in faith in the promise of God. And it gets even better than that because it's not only a place that we're going to be in for eternity, but get this. He tells him in what we just read that he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. Not only the Spirit, he says he shall be with you, or he is with you, but he shall be in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that is, that is brand new to the New Testament church. The Old Testament saints didn't have the indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon them at times, but now we have this wonderful relationship with God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there's, we could go, spend a lot of time on that. But it gets even better than that. On the day of Pentecost, what happened? After Jesus ascended, 
After he ascended into heaven, the day of Pentecost came. What happened? The, the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church. The Spirit was in the, in the people who believed in him. And now the Spirit came upon them, giving them boldness, giving them the assurance. And see, we need that. We need that boldness. We need to pray for that before we go out uh, you know, a week or you know, next week, you know, next Sunday evening. We need that. We need to be bold, lovingly bold, though. There's a difference. There's people out there waving Bibles and calling people names and you're going to go to hell, you rotten sinner. And they're throwing their, they got these placards and they're like, you know, God hates blah, 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 whatever it is. You know, and it's like, really? No, we have to be lovingly bold. Lovingly bold. There's a big difference. One is very, it's like, wow, there's something about you that's really cool. But nobody wants to be around somebody who's screaming at them, telling them they're going to go to hell. I mean, it may be true, but the delivery is important, don't you think? <laughs> the delivery is very important. <laughs> so, I remember back in 2001, uh, I was at a shepherd's school. And this kind of hits home with me, this whole topic that we're talking about, because in my own life, I just want to share something with you. Uh, back in 2001, I'd been on staff here at the church since, uh, I've been here since 1995, but I came on staff in 2000 and, um, 2003. But two years prior to that, in 2001, uh, Pastor Jeff uh, sent me to the Shepherd School there in, um, down in Pennsylvania. And I was in a room in the basement with a bunch of snoring men. And one night that we were there, um, I actually heard a voice, and this is, I, don't, I haven't really shared this with too many people, well, with a few people, but the Lord actually spoke to me very clearly, and I was sleeping, and I was on a cot, I know exactly where I was, and it startled me because I felt like somebody was right next to my head speaking, and it was, it was loud enough to get my attention in it immediately, and all he said to me is, I have given you a pastorate. That was it. I have given you a pat. And it was so loud and clear that I actually jumped up out of bed, startled because I felt like somebody was right here. Or I forget, it was actually this ear on this side. And it freaked me out because I looked around and every, it's a dark room and everyone's sleeping and there's nobody around. And so I just kind of tucked that away in my heart and I'm like, well, what am I going to do with that, Lord? <laughs> You know, you've allowed me to be, a, you know, leading worship here. I've, I've loved doing that. I love doing that. I love leading. That's one of my favorite things to do. And I love doing it. But what does this mean? I don't know what this means. And how do, you, how do I, I can't, how, what am I going to go to tell Pastor Jeff? I, you know, your time's up, buddy. I mean, am I going to go and say that? He'd be like, uh, your time's up, buddy. Uh, <laughs> so I just stuffed it in my heart, and I'm like, God, if, you, if that was really you, you're going to have to work it out because I can't work that out. I don't know how to do that. I'm very blessed, and I'm, I love what I do here at the church already. You're going to have to make it happen, and I don't know how it's going to happen. So I'm just going to leave it in your hands. And lo and behold, you know, here I am. And it happened, but it was 17 years later. 17 years later, the Lord brings us all to pass. And I had no clue how to get there, where to go. I wanted to keep my mouth shut. I was kind of sheepish about it because nobody, nobody makes that claim unless God has really called you to do it. And I know he did. 
And so I just had to wait for that promise to come to pass. I had no idea how to do it because I knew it would seem preposterous and very, um, um, it, it wouldn't seem right to try and make something. I mean, who would do that? So you just, you just wait. You just wait, and the Lord, he did it. At a time when I didn't think, kind of blindsided me, but when the time came, all the pieces came together very quickly, and I'm, I'm still confounded by the whole process. But was it because I was so astute in my studies, and was it because I prayed you know, for hours on, you know, and, you know, and walked across glass on my knees to go kiss the statue? No, I didn't do any of that. I especially didn't kiss the glass or kiss the statue and walk across on glass. I didn't do any of those things. God was faithful. He was faithful. I was a blubbering idiot. But that's not for me to worry about. That's what he is all about. And when he speaks something to you, be patient. Has he spoken something to your heart and he hasn't fulfilled it yet? Just trust him. Wait on him. And if he hasn't, that's okay. He's got a plan for your life. All of us have a, he's got a plan for his life. But David was not grasping for power and authority. He was simply walking, again, in the promises of God, and he was patient. Why don't we stop there? Because if I go any longer, you're going to be here quite a bit longer, and this is a good breaking point. So... Why don't we do this? I don't know about you, but this is really exciting to me because David had already heard the promise. He was waiting. He wasn't chomping at the bit. He wasn't trying to force. I mean, he could have, for, he could have caused the whole thing to go much quicker if he would have just killed Saul when he had the opportunity in the cave. He could have done it. He could have, he could have had the other guys do it. They were asking. They are like, please let us do it. We'll just get this guy out of your hair. And out of our hair, too. We're running just as much as you are. And David's like, no, that's not God's way. I am not going to usurp anyone's authority. If God wants to take Saul out, he's going to do it in his way, in his time. And David waited patiently. He was not usurping. He wasn't chomping at the bit. He was just waiting patiently, in faith, knowing that God had spoken to him, and he had the faith. God even gave him the faith to believe that if you said it, God, then it's going to come to pass. I don't know how or when or how it's going to happen. I know this feeling. I know it personally. And maybe you do too, and I hope you do. And I hope God brings that to you, and you can have that, that assurance of, of just being in that place of waiting for his promise to come to pass. And when it does, it's going to be the sweetest thing you've ever experienced. It really is. There is no gift on the earth that is sweeter. When God says he's going to do something and then you wait. You just wait. And then he does it. And you're like, how's that possible? How can you do that? That means you are who you say you are, God. You're the God who sees all things. You're 
You're all powerful. You see the end from the beginning. Read Psalm 139. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing just to think of God's omniscience. He knows all things. He's got everything planned out. He knows the day you're born. He knows the day you're going to pass. He knows the day. He knows everything in between. And yet we can love him and trust him and be loved by him. Will you be loved by God in spite of all your failures and your sin, as we all have? Can we love him and let him love us? And trust him when he says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that promise? Because there's so many who, we all make mistakes, we all sin, whether in, 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 you know, on purpose or by accident. But when we confess it, he, it's like it never happened. Can we walk in that reality? Can we walk in that promise and hold to that truth? Like nothing ever happened? Because so often I, I make a mistake and I, I ask God to forgive me. And maybe you can relate to this. I'll ask him to forgive me for some stupid thing that I've done. And he forgives me and I know that. But I feel like i got to go through a couple of days of just kind of whining and complaining and putting my head down and like Eeyore, you know. Oh, God doesn't love me. You probably don't love me either. You know, and you walk around with your head hanging low, and you're just, you got your own personal flagellum in your, in your purse. You know, you pull it out, the cat of nine tails, and you just, you whack yourself with it a couple times. Oh, I deserve that. Oh, oh, my car broke down today. I deserve that too. My cat bit me, and my iPhone, I dropped it in the toilet, and I flushed it before I could get my hand on it. I deserve it because of what I did. Lord, you're so righteous in your judgment. And God's going, what are you talking about? You're just having a bad day. Didn't I forgive you? Why are you walking around like that? Do, you dishonor him by going about like that. You honor him by taking him at his word and saying, Lord, I really messed up. And he goes, yeah, I know you did. And you've confessed it, and it's under the blood of my son. And is his blood efficacious? There's a nice word for you. Is his blood able to forgive you and to cleanse you? I sometimes act like it's not. But the truth of the matter is, it is. And when we grasp that and when we believe it and walk in it, oh my goodness, how things change. You can make the big, one of the biggest mistakes and then confess it and truly in brokenness and then get up from there like David did. Remember when Bathsheba, when the son died? And, and he was there fasting at the, at the altar, in a sense, there in the house of God. And when the son died, he got up, and he's like, it's done. And he started to eat, and they're like, what's the matter with you? Aren't you going to whip yourself? <laughs> Aren't you going to get out your personal flagellum? He's like, no. God is sovereign, and he's forgiven me. And I know what, I'm walking on, I'm moving on. Can you do that by faith?